As we look at Matthew's brief account here of the birth of Christ, uh, it seems that he kind of fast-forwards this quite a bit because when you look at Luke's account, you get a lot of the, the background surrounding um, the birth of Jesus, but Matthew just jumps right into it. And I think that he jumps right into it because he's writing from a very Jewish perspective. He's writing uh, to show that Christ is the answer to the question that Israel has been asking all along. What do we do with our sin? And how will this promised Messiah rescue us? These questions have been asked and asked and asked and asked. And yet, when Matthew opens, when he gives his description, he transitions to this right off of a genealogy. The, the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew is basically opening up on a family tree. And in doing so, as with all genealogies, what he is doing is tracing for us the lineage of Jesus, of course. He's tracing for us the path so that we might see uh, by which Jesus has come through uh, the line of David. Of course, he's participating in this. We see that through this, he also highlights the names in these genealogies uh, who perhaps were not the most reputable folks, had some failings perhaps, to show that uh, this isn't necessarily a uh, morally perfect lineage. But he finishes this and then immediately transitions from a lineage to no background, no, nothing to fill in, just the birth of Jesus happened this way. It's kind of his, his transition sentence. It's as if he's just kind of saying, all right, here's, like, here's some family tree. Okay, here's what you need to know. He's getting to the question that is being asked by Jews throughout history, God's people. How will we be saved and who will the Savior be? He ends the genealogy in verse 17 by spelling out these generations. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation uh, to Babylon, to Christ, 14 generations. He's spelt out for us this uh, great length of time, these events. But it's through these events that we see that God is faithful to keep his promise. He's faithful to hold, to hold his promises as true and to hold his character of faithfulness uh, in these difficult times. And now his promise comes, comes to a climax in the birth of Christ. And so it opens up 
not just with an announcement of Christ being born, but a stated purpose for the birth of Christ, answering these questions for us. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, they, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. We find two characters, Mary and Joseph, who were to be married, who were not yet married, but were in this legally binding uh, relationship of betrothal. And it's discovered in the midst of this that she uh, is with child. Joseph is clued into this in verse 19. We find that Joseph is a just man. We're told that he doesn't want to put her to shame. Isn't that gracious? He's acting with a gracious attitude, a gracious approach, even though he has no knowledge about how this came about at this point. He approaches gracefully to deal with Mary on the basis of God's grace, not on what she deserved, but on giving her something that she, she didn't deserve. He resolved to divorce her quietly. This is uh, what would have been done. They weren't legally married at this point, but they were in a legal uh, betrothal, which, uh, so this is a kind of a, when it says divorce, it's basically severing this legal contract that would have been put in place. Uh, this, is, this doesn't mean to be unmarried. They weren't, they weren't married at this point. But in the midst of this, as he's considering this, he receives word from an angel. And the word is this, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And it's in this moment that we get the stated purpose of Christ. And it comes about through his name. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You see, it was Joseph who was potentially looking at Mary and thinking, it seems as though, it seems as though she acted sinfully, that she found herself in this place that he did not yet understand. But yet, Jesus has come not to bring condemnation, but to mirror the attitude of his father. We get a bit of foreshadowing in the attitudes of Joseph, being incredibly gracious. And here, Jesus will act graciously toward mankind. He will be the exact imprint of God, our Heavenly Father. And we find that Jesus' stated purpose, he's given this name, Jesus, for a specific reason, uh, and his stated purpose is that he will save his people from their sins. And we're told that this was uh, connected to prophecy, to answer these questions that Israel has had. How can we be saved from our sins? And who is this Savior? Matthew notes it for us, 
connecting the Jewish thread, the expectations that would have been there amongst uh, the people of God. All this took place, we're told in verse 22, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So we have the name of Jesus, we have the stated purpose, but then we have the connection to this prophecy. To say that Jesus is the fulfillment, that he is the answer to the questions that Israel has been asking. And the questions that they've been asking are fulfilled both in the person of Christ and the work of Christ. His name, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then we have the method by which he will do this. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He will save his people from their sins by being with us, by coming and dwelling among us, by coming down, by condescending and appearing in the likeness of man as Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2. He will save his people from their sins. Now, I love the specificity here because this gives us, it gives us what we should be seeking uh, salvation from. That we need to be saved from our sins. Because I think that as we, as we go through this time of year, as we uh, take stock around this time of year, what we begin to do is we uh, look at the comparison game. We begin to think about those relatives or friends or family members that we have to face. We have to think of, of the colleagues that uh, we have at work, our peers. And we begin to think like, okay, well, I've got like a, maybe an annual review coming up or I've got to go home for the holidays and they're going to ask me what I've been up to or what are my plans for the future. And you know, I, I want to have a good answer for them. I want to make sure that they're pleased with me. And, and so we begin to develop in our hearts answers to these questions so that we might please others, so that we might be uh, right in right standing before others. And oftentimes, our biggest worries and anxieties begin to be that we need salvation. We need to be rescued from these judgments of others. Like, I'm going to come up with a way to say this in a really sort of way that's honest, but also is maybe embellishes so that way I don't get further questions. That way people don't poke at that line of thinking too much. We try to misrepresent ourselves sometimes in a way to perhaps guard our identities. There's many things in life that we want to be saved from. These different hardships and difficulties and pains and anxieties and worries and fears. We want relief from all sorts of these things. But what Jesus tells us through his very name, what the scriptures tell us through this indictment that we are given, is that our biggest problem is our sin. Our biggest problem is our sin. Sins that we commit and sins that we uh, 
that we participate in through omission, things that we do not do, that we are supposed to do, things that we fail to honor God in. More often than not, what we want to be saved from is life not going the way that we want it to go, that we expected it to go in a certain way. And this is really, you know, what we're chasing down. I really want it to go this way. I'm hoping it's going to go this way. This is what my expectations are. But when we deal with God on the basis of our expectations, again, we've begun to use him for gain. When all along the message of Christmas is that he is the treasure. He is the goal. He came down to be with us to help us with our greatest difficulty, our sin. Paul echoes this in his letter to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ, Jesus, came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. I love what Paul does here. He states the purpose of Christ, but it's almost as if he doesn't even need to say this. Because what he does in this moment in 1 Timothy chapter 1 is he uses uh, the full name and title of our Savior. Jesus Christ. These aren't a first name and last name, but rather a name and a title. That he is the Savior. He is, uh, as the angel Gabriel tells Joseph, his name there means that he will save their people from his sins. This is kind of the description of who he is. Jesus. Christ. Meaning anointed one. This is the title of who he is. That he is this promised Messiah. This promised rescuer. He has this job, this role. He will be a king who will rule and reign. And so what, uh, what, what Paul is getting at here in 1 Timothy chapter 1 is that Jesus is one who will come and save. He will rule and reign. And his primary purpose is to come into the world to save sinners. This is his chief goal. His chief goal isn't to make us happy about uh, how we want our life to be. His chief goal isn't to... Uh, affirm all of our decisions. His chief goal isn't to give us everything that we want. His chief goal is to bring us into a relationship with him so that we might rightly desire him above all other things. So that we might know him and that we might repent from our sin, that we might turn away from all the things that we treasure in place of him. All the things that we want that we prefer instead of him. He pursues us in such a way that there is this great exchange of our sinful desires for desires for Jesus. He came to save sinners because we need salvation. We need saving. 
because we are enslaved by nature to sin, and we need to be rescued. This is what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned. It is a universal statement, a universal fact that we are all in trouble. All have sinned. But then he gives us this definition of what it means. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what sin is. Falling short of God's glory. It means that we have trusted, we've placed our, our heart's uh, desire in other things. That we've been moved by other things more than we have been moved by God. We have been affected by other things more than we have been affected by God. We've allowed other things to shake us. We've allowed other things to uh, affect our identity or our decisions. When we should be wholeheartedly committed to God's glory. This should be the thing that is shaping our lives. Seeing Him rightly and responding to Him. When we chase after these other things, when we're pursuing them, oftentimes we don't even realize that we're valuing them more than we value Jesus. But when we do so, what's really happening is that we're worshiping another idol, we're worshiping something else. We're pursuing creation rather than the Creator. And so it's Jesus who has come to save us from our sin. The big reason that we need Jesus so much, that we need Him so desperately, is not because we are people who are not morally good, but we need a little help, we need a little boost, we need to read some self-help books, some self-improvement, we need to watch some TED Talks and podcasts and figure out how we can really kind of like refine our lives and be a little bit more like uh, elevated types of people. This isn't our problem. This is, this is the reason why we don't uh, settle when people try to convince us that we are good people. They don't know our heart of hearts. They don't know what's really inside. But the reason why we need Jesus is because we've fallen short of the standard of God's glory. Not of man's expectations, not of man's goodness, but of God's glory is what we've fallen short of. Our problem is how we've related to God, not how we relate to man. You recall that in any, any instance of sin, any instance of sin, God is always the most offended party. When you sin, you sin 100% of the time against God. You may sin against others, but you've primarily sinned against God. Right? This is why David uh, responds 
in, in Psalm uh, 51 where he's praying. He says, against you and you alone have I sinned, O Lord. I mean, he sinned against like Bathsheba and like Uriah, who he sent to like get murdered and like all this like crazy stuff. But he recognizes that his biggest problem is that he has offended God first. He's not treasured God's gifts to him properly. Uh, he's not found his identity in Christ. And so it's at any time we sin against others, it's not just, okay, well, you know, they're a pretty gracious person. You've primarily sinned against God. Thankfully, Jesus has a mission. And I love that this is his mission because I have like this real enjoyment of like digging into the, to the deeper meanings. And I love when things get hardcore. It's just like, it's so good. It's so good when like things just get like extra intense, especially when they're a bit subversive. I don't know if I don't know if it's this uh, I don't know what it is, but the thing that I just love about Christmas is that it's like the most insane story uh, of like I mean if you just take it on on like on the surface it's just like absolutely like wow like that's so so amazing, but when you realize what it actually is when you think about it at its base level and you strip away all of the, the trappings of Christmas, the decorations, and you, uh, you take away all of the, all of the, um, the, the pieces of, uh, of ornamental uh, and, and traditional things that we, we put in place to celebrate this time of year, to reenact the events, the nativity and the angels and the shepherds, all of this, essentially, like, what it is, is it's this insane, uh, like, thriller narrative where the secret weapon to destroy and absolutely, like, demolish, demolish Satan is, like, this covert, like, little, little baby. You're just like, wait, what? Like, the secret weapon that we're, that is going to, like, absolutely just come out and, and just, like, destroy our greatest enemy is this, is this little, tiny, humble child. And you realize it, that it gets intense because what happens is as those who are in power currently, not even the supernatural uh, domain, not even uh, the demonic realm, I mean, working through, you know, the physical realm, but we find, like, Herod just has a challenge to his power. Now he just starts killing all the babies, Right? Like, that's how intense it gets. Like, nobody's, like, really, like, talking about that at Christmas. Like, here's how insane it's about to get. But we're like, oh, there's, like, angels, and they have, like, these, like, beautiful flowing robes. But, like, in reality, it's, like, it's, it's a pretty gnarly story. Because what's on the line, what, what we're facing, is killing sin. Which is about putting yourself to death every day and finding new life in Christ every day. So there's not a lot of time, or there's not a lot of moments in that for things to look nice. In fact, when you're killing sin, it just looks bloody every day. 
Because again and again and again and again, you go to follow Christ into death. And so the message of Christmas isn't like so much of like, oh, like, there's like wonderful like cookies and like, you know, like these angels who are like flying around and like have these nice robes and like beautiful music and like, oh, there's like a super soft sheep. It's like we talk about death because that's what it's about. If you look at uh, throughout church history, half of the, the, of the liturgy surrounding Christmas is about death. Like, out of the four weeks of Advent that are set aside, like, death is one of them. Because this is about killing. It's about sin. It's about dealing with our enemy. And Jesus didn't come to play games. He didn't come to mess around. He came to do business. He came with a purpose. And it has to be this way because when we consider what sin is, the Bible rightfully says it's pretty fun for a season. We're likely to enjoy it because it is pleasurable for a season, for a time, for a short moment. But its end is death. And so when something seems nice, we've got to come out with ferocity. We've got to come out with intensity. We've got to come out prepared to fight, to win through the blood of Christ. <coughs> we end in 1 John. Chapter 3. I love 1 John chapter 3 because it tells you, here's what it means to be a Christian. Here's like, this, this passage is for those people who are like, I'm not really sure if like I'm a Christian. And like John writes to say like, well, here's how you know. Like that's what the whole, the whole chapter is about. But in the middle of this, he tells us about how Jesus deals with our sin. Because what, what happens a lot of times is even when we do give in, we're like, okay, yeah, Jesus, he's going to deal with my sin. What, what we do instead is we immediately, as soon as we recognize that, we're like, let's make another little idol. I want Jesus to deal with the consequences of my sin. Like all the bad stuff that comes from sinning, like he should help me with that. Whereas the stated purpose of Jesus is to destroy sin, to kill sin. not to save us from the consequences of it. We read in verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This is Jesus' purpose, to destroy sin, the works of the devil. Right? So he, what he's getting at here is this. If, if you're, he's trying to, to, to encourage Christians to admonish them, to tell them, hey, here's how you know you belong. If you are pursuing Christ, if your identity is in him, then you belong to Jesus. But if you're somebody who makes a practice of sinning, if this is how you define yourself, 
when you meet people, when you come out and you're like, hey, like I'm, here's my name and, and, I'm, and I, uh, I'm a sinner. I participate in the works of Satan and evil. Like if your identity is wrapped up in practicing these things, if you are unwilling to yield them day after day after day, if your life is entirely characterized by sin, you are uh, someone who is operating under the deceitfulness of Satan. You're living in the works of the devil. He, he lays this out for us so that we might know making a practice of sinning. And, and, I, and I think that's helpful for us that he defines that. Practice of sinning. Right? Because there's things that you want to get good at. Those things you practice. Those are the things that, that you got to get out there. You got to work at it. You got to get familiar with it. So you put it into practice. And you keep going again and again and again and again. That's one classification. But he tells us in verse 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Those who belong to God, those who have received Christ, who trust in him for salvation, over time, you cannot keep on sinning because you're becoming more Christ-like. He's rooting those things out of you. He doesn't say all of a sudden, like, oh, God's seed abides in you, so like, you never sin ever. He says, you don't make a practice of it. You're not identified by that anymore. The thing that he does do is he moves down into the next section. I'll just give it to you because we're there. He says, instead, you're defined by love, by loving one another. And loving one another is dealing, confessing sins before one another, uh, enjoying Jesus together. So he says, you're defined by love for one another. Loving God, loving one another. Isn't that what Jesus told us? is the greatest commandment and the second that's like it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, love your neighbor as yourself. We find that just simply summarized here in 1 John chapter 3. <coughs> Jesus comes to destroy the works of the devil. He doesn't come to give us all of our things that are on our wish list. He's not Santa, right? Santa's lame because you ask for stuff that you don't need and then you're supposed to get it. Right? Jesus is smart and the best because you ask for stuff that you don't need and he says, like, no, that's, like, really bad for you. You shouldn't have that. Instead, I know what you're actually asking for and here's something that's way better. Jesus appears to destroy the works of the devil. He didn't come to simply help us feel better when we sin, but to actually destroy sin itself. 
to defeat Satan, to remove sin, to conquer death. It's through Christmas, through the incarnation, that Jesus comes to be born as a child, living life in our place, dying at the cross, shedding his blood for our sin, paying for it with his own blood, and rising again on the third day. The author of Hebrews describes it this way in uh, chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It's Jesus who took on flesh and blood. He saw, it, it, Hebrews tells us, that we were children who share in flesh and blood. He himself, likewise, partook of the same things. Fully clothed in humanity, fully God, and his purpose, again stated, that through death he might destroy, not lessen, not diminish, destruction obliteration. It might not ever be pieced back together. It might not ever become a threat. You ever watch those movies that are kind of like structured in such a way that they kind of like leave like the little loophole for the villain to come back at the end? And you're like, you, you know there's that moment where like, like they don't finish the job, the hero doesn't finish the job. And you're like, why would you not just do it? Like, you're right there. Like, instead of, like, gloating, instead of, like, going and talking to people, like, why don't you just, like, finish it right here? And then, like, you know, but they have to, like, leave it open for some dramatic tension. I hate those because those moments because you're just like, are you kidding me? Like, you worked all that, that time to get this done. You, you put in all the effort. You don't just want to make sure that it's finished. But Jesus always makes sure it's finished. He's always there to, to make sure that when that villain goes down, there's no chance of a sequel. There's no chance that that's going to come back in like three minutes for some dramatic re-entry. He has come to destroy, to win, to crush. He's there to do business. He's not there to leave room for a second movie. Right? Like, it's done. He came with a purpose. To deliver us. Who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We've got to kill it. We've got to kill sin. It will destroy us if we don't. Jesus has made a way for us to destroy it by trusting in him. And so like our Savior, 
we have got to be people who are closing up all those loopholes. We can't leave room. We can't leave room for a comeback. It's true that he has come and that he forgives our sin. 100% true. But it's more true that he's come to destroy our sin. He will forgive our sin, but he's come to empower us so that we might live unto God and not enslaved to sin. And so as the world welcomes Jesus at Christmas, as everyone's singing the songs, know that they're welcoming the one who would destroy sin. Not one who would give them what they want or would, would make everyone feel better or who would uh, just simply forgive your sin. but the one who is there to ensure that when you trust in him for salvation, that you are forgiven, that you are able to overcome sin by denying yourself, by taking up your cross and following him to your own death every day. He was born so that man no more may die. We do not face that death, but by living to Christ, we have that new life. And it's through in finding our identity in him that we survive. And so we can walk every day in victory in Christ. And so when you wake up, Tomorrow and the next day and the next day when you wake up on Christmas morning and like everything is all like festive everywhere. When you're walking around and shopping, when you're with friends and family and you're eating like huge pieces of pie and like drinking cider and coffee and, and people are like singing Christmas carols. Just in your mind, think... I, I am putting on the armor of God. And so like I'm eating this pie and I've just got like a massive sword. And I'm just like yoked with like this huge shield right now. Like I'm not here to mess around. I'm here to slay some fools. Right? Satan's going to come at you and just like, no, dog. That isn't going to happen. When you wake up in the morning, you're getting out. You're waking up. And you just got like the most lethal weapons ready to go. It's such a contrast. You know, I, what kind of got me on this line of thinking this week is I was in New York this past week and everywhere is festive. But you know, like there's been like a lot of like sketchy things that have been happening in like New York lately, particularly in the building that I work in. There was like a bomb threat and like, like a couple times or whatever. And so, like, in the middle of, like, all these Christmas trees, there's just, like, all these, like, huge guys with just, like, 
machine guns just like hanging out. And I was just like, what a contrast. Like, there's just like all this like festive stuff and people like, there's Christmas carolers like walking through the mall singing. And then they're just like, everyone's just like, there's like five guys just like holding machine guns. It's like, that's, that's literally what Christmas is right there. Like we're here to war. We're not here to have fun. Like we're having fun, but we're holding machine guns while we're doing it. Like we're here to battle. We're here to win. To fight off sin. Because Jesus has come to destroy it. I hope that picture stays in your mind because that's the battle that we fight not only on Christmas, but every day. Ready to fight. We want to finish that race strong. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your kindness, your love, your faithfulness to us. <coughs> and we know, Lord, we confess that we fall short of your glory. Lord, your word tells us that we fall short of your glory, that we've not treasured you rightly. And so, Lord, we, we want to receive all that you have for us, Lord, you're so merciful. You've paid the price for our sin. You're so gracious, Lord, in that you've brought us into your family. You've taken that price that we should have paid upon yourself. We're so thankful, Lord, that you, you loved us so deeply, even when we were against you, even when we were your enemies your never-ending, never-stopping, never-giving-up love. Lord, you pursued us again and again. You continue to pursue us. And so, Lord, we want to respond to your kindness. Lord, your word tells us that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. And so this morning, Lord, we repent of not treasuring you rightly. We repent of pursuing other things instead of you. We repent of choosing things above you, of preferring other things above you. Lord, help us to see you clearly and to pursue you rightly. Lord, we want to worship you now and to give you glory. So work in your people. We love you. Amen.